The Founding Fathers, American Revolution, our Constitution, our History, America. Thanks so much for tuning in as we discuss the people, places, events, and battles that turned 13 separate colonies into the greatest nation on earth, the United States. Welcome back, patriots. I'm your host, Ron Kern, and thank you for giving me an opportunity to share my passion with all of you. On my last episode, which was the first of the year, we talked about the first Continental Congress and how important that was and actually what a big deal it was. So I hope that you were able to listen to that one. In previous shows and, of course, on my website, I've mentioned that if there is something that interests you about the revolution, or if there is a person, topic, or battle that you want to know a little bit more about, all you have to do is let me know. You can leave a voice message via the podcast, send me an email, or use the contact form on my website, which again is patriotpowerpodcast.com. Well, Heather, a faithful listener, did just that. Hi, my name's Heather, longtime listener, first time caller. I'd love to have an episode focus on Marquis de Lafayette and all of his contributions to the Revolutionary War effort. Thanks for all that you do. I love listening to this podcast and putting out all of this great information is a treat for all of us. Thank you so much. When people think about Marquis de Lafayette, if they've even heard of him at all, may think of him something like this. He was some French dude that believed in our independence so much that he came over and fought on our side. That, in its most basic form, is accurate. However, as with anybody that I study, the more I find. And with Lafayette, it was more and more and more. It was such an extraordinary life that he had, and the zeal for assisting us, the colonists, fight for independence, was really complex on one hand, but pretty basic on the other. But know this, his passion for helping us, nor his motives, should ever be questioned. With the amount of time that I devote studying anything and everything I can get my hands on about the revolution, my level of knowledge regarding Lafayette was fairly good, or so I thought. The more layers of the onion I peeled back, however, the more I realized just how little I actually knew. This is why I love researching and digging into things to a granular level. There's just so much to soak up and learn. To me, history is not about remembering dates and names. It should bring the past alive and be exciting, allowing you, the listener, the ability to put yourself in their shoes and envision a very clear picture of what I'm talking about, and in the end, have an understanding of the why. We have a lot to learn from Lafayette, Washington, and history in general, which is why it's so critical that we study and understand it. I don't want you to learn about the American Revolution. I want you to experience it. That's my goal with every show, and this one is no different. Lafayette is a fascinating person to study. From his upbringing, 
how he came to America and why, his personal life, his military life, and his experiences with not just our revolution, but also the French Revolution, it's a story that just must be heard. In reading through his personal letters and looking at the timeline of his life, the more impressed I became and wanted to know more. He intrigued me, and I think as you listen, you too will have the same desire that I had, wanting to know more about the Marquis de Lafayette. What I discovered is his role and involvement in the war itself is a collection of amazements and, when chronicled, it would fill up bookshelves and, well, it has, with many, many books already being written about him. Add to it his childhood and the French Revolution and the remainder of his life, those volumes quickly become a library of its own. What I uncovered during my research for this show were nuggets of several unknown facts, remarkable acts of bravery, kindness, and lived the definition of wanting to serve. With 29 pages of notes I collected, a very messy desk, and a large coffee in hand, I'm super excited to share it all with you in this bonus episode, my 21st show, so let's get started. Why would someone from another country risk so much as in his fortune and life come fight in a war that his country wasn't even involved with? We know that France eventually does come to our assistant and fights alongside us, but when Lafayette came over, France wasn't even involved yet. Now, add to it that not only was he from another country, but someone that was exceptionally rich, had connections, nobility, and had everything to lose. It's hard for us, two plus centuries later, to fully comprehend it, so we have to speculate. Lafayette is a fascinating and complex man who led an amazing life. It is impossible to provide a complete life history and biography that would give him the justice, credit, and accolades that he truly deserves in a podcast, or for that matter, any format. What I can do, however, is provide you with his early years and background, reasons for coming over to the colonies, his contributions to the revolution, and share with you things you likely haven't heard about. Keep in mind that he went from fighting in our revolution to fighting in the French Revolution. So to encompass his life in its entirety and truly comprehend his mindset requires years of research. Thankfully, many authors have done just that, and as always, I have those books listed in my show notes, as they are great books that dive way deep into his life. I can see why they spent years of their life researching him. As for this podcast alone, I've probably put in 18 hours, and I never grew tired of it. He's just that intriguing. At the end of this show, I want you to know who he was, his background, and answer the question of why he wanted to come and help us. Key and pivotal events in his life and our war, and have a solid understanding of this remarkable person, at least through our revolution. The importance of Lafayette and his participation and involvement in the American Revolution cannot be emphasized enough. It was truly that important, and had he not been involved, I think the outcome of the war and the country would have a very different landscape. 
I'd like to say thanks to Heather for suggesting Lafayette as the topic of this bonus episode, as for me, I learned a tremendous amount, and what I found was quite unexpected. It was a truly fantastic experience for me, and I hope it's the same for you. So with that, I want to get started and share with you a factual story that oftentimes will sound more like you're reading something out of a fairy tale. It's about a wealthy young man from France who, on his own accord and dime, came to our country and risked it all. He wanted to be part of something that was big, brave, and bold, and become famous in the process. It's evident to me that he clearly succeeded. Although there are countless moving pieces and important people involved with the forming of our country and the, the entire revolution as a whole, Lafayette was absolutely instrumental in the success of our country's independence and should be known and remembered as such. His birth name is long, French, and hard to pronounce. Here is what it might have sounded like when somebody addressed him in France. Marie-Joseph Paul-Yves Roche-Gilbert Dumotier, Marquis de Lafayette. And one more time in case you missed it. Marie-Joseph Paul-Yves Roche-Gilbert Dumotier, Marquis de Lafayette. <laughs> since, since that is clearly a mouthful, I'll refer to him as most everybody else did back then, which was simply Lafayette. Lafayette was born in a very wealthy family in 1757 in the region of Auvergne, France. For you visual folks, Auvergne is about 270 miles south of Paris, just so you have an idea of where it actually is on a map. His life started out rough, as within a short time of being born, the first of many tragedies took place. On August 1st, 1759, his father was killed in the Battle of Minden during the French and Indian War, also referred to as the Seven Years' War. Lafayette had not even reached the age of two when this happened. Now, I covered the French and Indian War in episode three. Whew, that was a long time ago, but go back to episode three if you want to familiarize yourself with it. One should really know about this war as it sets the stage for our own revolution on many, many levels and is the war that shaped George Washington. And that alone should provide a reason. I know, I know, I'm biased, but hey, you can't really understand our revolution without knowing about the French and Indian War, at least know it accurately. France and England literally hated each other, and they had for eons. Due to the fact that his dad died by British hands, it made the hatred and contempt for Britain a very deep and personal one for him, and one that he wanted to avenge sooner than later. He was educated at a military academy and at the age of 13 inherited the title of Marquis. His education, both in military and general studies, was taught by the best of the best. What does being a Marquis mean? Well, it's a title that ranks below a duke, but above an earl, count, and a baron. These titles are for monarchy-type governments, and let's just say having Marquis as a title in your name is a very big deal. In fact, as we'll learn, it came in quite handy once he landed in the colonies. Also at the age of 13, his mother and two grandfathers died, 
leaving him even more wealth. It was a horrible time in his life, as now he truly had nobody he could call family, but with each passing, he gained more money and more land. This is not the way to get rich, but that is how it happened for him. And rich, beyond imagination, materialistically happened. With his mom's death, though, Lafayette was now technically an orphan. In 1771, at the very ripe old age of 16, he married Adrienne, who was 14 years old at the time, and was a daughter of a wealthy French nobleman, which would be yet another source of wealth for him. His new wife's family was not only wealthy, they literally were the most powerful and prominent family in all of France. Looking at his marriage from any angle showed power, wealth, prestige, and nobility like to the hundredth power. I'm not sure when the term power couple came into being, but they are the epitome of that term. They would spend 33 years together until her death in 1807. Footnote. His marriage wasn't one of what you might expect here in the States to be, like meeting a young, beautiful woman, hopefully, let's definitely not be 14 years old, falling in love, courtship, meeting the parents, having dates, and then marrying for love. This was not how it went down for them, or really anyone with royalty or nobility in their DNA. We all probably know what arranged marriages are, and that is what Lafayette and Adrienne's marriage was. How the people that were getting married felt about it, and how they felt about one another, really didn't matter. In fact, it didn't matter at all. Arranged marriages kept the bloodline and power contained in each respective family, and by joining such people with marriage, it combined their family's history, lineage, money, power, and land. Some people may think that arranged marriages are a thing of the past and happened way back when, but it still happens today. India, China, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Japan, Iraq, Iran, Indonesia, and a couple others still do this. South Korea, Iraq, and Iran are the most stringent, with women in these countries being considered less important and not very valuable at all, and are clearly defined as the property of their husband. And let's not kid ourselves. Arranged is a nice, more politically pleasing way of saying forced. And although Lafayette and Adrienne would differ on several things, they were equally supportive of one another. In reading their letters to each other, it's my opinion they really did, in fact, love one another. End footnote. It's very difficult to compare money, worth, and just how rich somebody was back then and turn it into today's monetary equivalent on top of comparing French currency to the continental dollar. It's difficult because of inflation, but so often in many countries, including our own, worth was balanced upon the trade and barter system, so putting a specific dollar amount on things is kind of difficult to do. But with that said, he was the richest boy in France, and more realistically, he was the richest person in France. His family line and nobility had great wealth, and in a short amount of time, 
there were death after death after death on his mother's side, which kept leaving him more money and more land, atop of more money and more land. He was also the only born son, so everything went to him. And for further perspective, if you took France and looked at it on a map, if you took 35% of the entire country, that's how much land Lafayette owned, which equates to roughly 27 million acres. As I said before, it's difficult to say he was worth X amount in today's dollars, but what I could figure out and glean from other experts on the topic, including his land ownership and inheritance, plus his yearly salary today, it would be somewhere in the neighborhood of 750 to $900 million. Although that is a dollar figure we hear often, it's truly hard and difficult to comprehend just how much money that is, and my estimate is probably shooting low. His salary alone in U.S. dollars was about $2.44 million alone every year. How would you like to make that much for doing, well, what was his job again? <laughs> it was pretty much just being alive. He didn't have any duties or a job per se to speak of. The benefits of being born into nobility. When Lafayette was young growing up, he lived on the outskirts out in the country. And although he was wealthy, he preferred to be away from the city and he enjoyed running and playing and as boys do, running through the forest and just really enjoyed the outdoors. And once his wealth accumulated to such a point, that's when they moved in closer to the city. So in theory, he was a really, really rich country kid and he enjoyed the space, freedom and all outdoor activities. When we picture somebody in history that were very, very important and all we have is statues and paintings that to go by, we, we sometimes don't know really like what, what were they like? What did he look like? And Lafayette, he, he was a bit of an awkward kid. Like, you know, the, the kid in class you remember who was lanky and he grew like way too tall, way too fast. Lafayette was like that kid, and he actually grew to six foot tall, which was much taller than the average height at the time. And he had a strawberry blonde type complexion with blue eyes and freckles, and was really all arms and all legs, which did not help his clumsiness. And uh, there's a famous story about uh, when he was dancing with a lady at a fancy ball he was dancing with, who would soon become the future queen and pretty much fell flat on his face. Of course, it embarrassed him greatly. And I say this not as a figure of speech. He literally tripped and fell on his face, landing at the feet of Marie Antoinette. And this embarrassment would stay with him the rest of his life. And it was another reminder on how he did not like and overly respect, nor want to be in this nobility type of lifestyle that he had no control or choice of being part of it or not. It came to him by being born into it. He also spoke in a, in a way that would be comparable in America to a country boy from the South. He was a little hard to understand and a, a bit rough around the edges, being refined and knowing how to bow and what to say and how to say it and all of those fancy, fancy things. 
was not something that he put a lot of importance on. Then, of course, once he went to Versailles, it was blatantly obvious that he was different than everybody else there. His clothes were dated, he sounded funny, he was tall, lanky, awkward, and he just did not fit in. He went to school with top nobility, three of which were princes. As a teenager, being different and standing out is not something that you usually want, and it made him uncomfortable most of the time. He never really settled into nobility. The fanciness of being the elite rich and hobnobbing with royalty, it never really suited him and most certainly did not align with his dreams, aspirations, and the goals that he had already set for himself. Something pretty cool about his heritage and ancestry that I'm guessing you may not have heard or read about is this. His ancestors fought right alongside Joan of Arc and even in the Crusades. His direct family ancestors were actual knights. His lineage was chocked full of great soldiers and military leaders going way, way back. And as with the hundreds of years before him, he was expected to fall in line and do the same. It was assumed, as everyone in his family before him did, that he would marry, have kids to carry on his family name, fight in a war valiantly, and then die young. That's a pretty bleak picture if you ask me, but again, that's, that's not only what everybody thought would happen, it was kind of pretty much expected. Lafayette eventually moved to the city and lived at the Palace of Versailles, and he rubbed shoulders with the highest and most powerful people in the land. And at the time, Versailles was not only filled with wealth, it truly was one of the wealthiest places in the entire world at the time, and Lafayette was dead center, right in the middle and thick of it. This is where Marie Antoinette and the king lived, so you cannot get any more powerful of a place than that. Knowing that Lafayette preferred country living over the lifestyle of nobility and living at Versailles, I researched this palace. I wanted to have a better understanding of what it was that he actually saw while living there, what the halls looked like, what the rooms looked like, and what were the surroundings and the grounds and I wanted to be able to envision why he didn't like it very much. Now, before I started doing a little more research on Versailles, my knowledge of it was not so much. I, I knew it was a big palace and it was kind of something you'd see out of a, a movie. The palace at Versailles, the history behind it is long and rich, and I'm barely going to scratch the surface of what it is and what it was like during the time that Lafayette lived there. I have, however, put some links in the show notes about Versailles that are really cool, and it shows the growth and the building of it with animations over the centuries from the time it started until today, and they did it in a 3D way. It's really spectacular and uh, definitely worth watching. Versailles is where the king and queen lived in France and eventually Parliament and the king's mistresses and their kids would eventually call it home. Yes, an entire home was built for just the king's mistresses and her children and the king's children. King Louis XIII started it off as a small hunting lodge in 1624 and with each successor that followed, it grew. 
and after reading and watching the history of Versailles, some words came to mind to me like detailed, extravagant, rich, wealth, enormous, and beautiful. But some other words also came to mind like opulence, ridiculous, gluttonous, absurd, fairy tale, and over the top. As you will see if you check the links in the show notes, there is no doubt it is insanely magnificent. It seems as if everything has or is made from gold or silver. Statues, paintings galore fill every room and truly is a sight to behold, especially when you consider when it was built. Now, back then, mirrors were extremely expensive and rare. So, Versailles being Versailles, they had a hall the length of a football field that was roughly 8,300 square feet called the Hall of Mirrors. And that hall was lined with 357 of them. The Hall of Mirrors is probably the most famous room in the palace. The chamber pots, you know, what they went to the bathroom in? They were made of silver. <laughs> Seriously? There wasn't an inch that wasn't detailed and well thought out. Well, there is a part that wasn't really thought out, and I'll get to that in a minute. The palace is a staggering 721,000 square feet. And if you take the average size of a home here in America, you could fit three houses in the Hall of Mirrors alone. When it was in full swing, it employed over 5,000 people, and when large parties, weddings, or balls were held, it took over 20,000 candles to light up the palace. The palace also contains five chapels, a full-sized opera house, hidden doors, and some amazing architecture. The palace has over 700 rooms, 67 staircases, 6,000 paintings, over 2,000 windows, and 1,250 chimneys. Yes, 1,250 fireplaces alone in this palace. That, and many other, like, scratch-your-head type things, are just the inside of Versailles. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply outside yeah you can expect pretty much the same it's insane the gardens alone cover 2,000 acres have 400 sculptures and 1,400 water fountains over 210,000 flowers and 200,000 trees are planted there every year and the golden gate at the entrance contains 100,000 little tiny individual gold leaves that is worth, in U.S. dollars, eight million bucks. I could go on and on, but I think you get the point and perhaps why a kid fond of country life didn't really like or fit in here at the palace at Versailles. There are many things about Versailles that I found interesting, but a couple did stand out. First, when the king slept, there was a chair next to his bed where a trusted person would watch him sleep all night long and every night. How creepy is that? Well, when the king woke up, this person would notify everybody 
and it was treated like, Now that the king is awake, the day and the world can now commence. Him waking up was treated like an event, and this happened every single morning. Secondly, the king and queen always ate their meals cold. Why? Well, once the meal was cooked and placed on their royal golden platters, it would be brought to them in the dining room. Here's the oversight that I mentioned earlier, uh, because the architect may have missed this because the distance between the kitchen and the dining room was so far away that by the time they left the kitchen and brought it to them, the food was cold. How crazy is that? And it kind of just demonstrates the monstrosity of, of the entire palace. You, you would think they could have had a runner or found a solution. I mean, after all, they did have a hundred chefs that worked in the kitchen. On average, Versailles receives over 10 million visitors each year, and perhaps the magnitude of extravagance and excess of the palace had something to do with the upcoming French Revolution? I, I'm thinking maybe so. Europe as a whole had a little more than a decade of peace, so there were a lot of experienced military soldiers with nothing to do. There was no wars for them to go fight, so... This tidbit of information is going to be important, and I'll explain that in a little bit. After the French and Indian War, France realized that how they had been fighting wars wasn't really working. So I'll say they reorganized the hierarchy and, and the entire army, which pretty much in doing so put Lafayette in the reserves. It bumped him from the military, and it dashed any hopes of future glory in battle that he had dreamed of since a little boy. Lafayette and many of his relatives and friends became Freemasons. In Europe, this was a dedicated brotherhood and they believed popular sovereignty and the struggle for the rights of men. This was not just a cool club or something neat to belong to. He believed in this deeply. There was someone else who was a Freemason across the ocean whom he would soon meet, and that was George Washington. Footnote. When you hear someone is a Freemason or you hear that term, what do you initially think of? For many, it's a bad thing. It's a devious and evil group of people that try and look good but do bad things. They want to take over and control the world and the universe. All of this is false. Don't believe either that they meet in a dark, hidden, and unmarked location and worship the devil and hate the sanctity of life. That too is ludicrous. Being a Freemason has been demonized in both print and movies for centuries, and to be blunt, it's all garbage. A Freemason is someone that is a member of an international order which was established for mutual help and fellowship with each other. In short, it's a plan to make the world a better place, one person, one member at a time. I personally know several Freemasons, and they aren't evil. They're not trying to dominate the world with some secret agenda. They're not working in the back shadows behind a curtain. They're, they're very nice and solid people who contribute to society in a positive and healthy way. And generally, their focus is on helping and serving others. It's true. Every group and organization has their whack jobs and their bad apples, but what people have concocted over the years about Freemasons is, is pretty laughable in my opinion. Who else was a Freemason that you might have heard of? In addition to Lafayette and George Washington, we can't leave out other founding fathers including Benjamin Franklin, Aaron Burr, Paul Revere, 
or John Hancock. Nine signers of the Declaration of Independence and 13 who signed the Constitution were also Masons. Civil rights activists Booker T. Washington and Thurgood Marshall were also Masons. So was Henry Ford and Harry Truman. So were astronauts John Glenn and Buzz Aldrin. John Wayne, Harry Houdini, Richard Pryor, Colonel Sanders from KFC fame, John Elway, Arnold Palmer, Scottie Pippen, and even Mozart were Freemasons. Lewis and Clark, Davy Crockett, Teddy Roosevelt, and Mark Twain also joined this organization and were Freemasons. From this very small list, I think you can make a logical and educated decision on the legitimacy and purpose of what being a Freemason is. End footnote. Let's jump ahead a couple of years after his marriage, so now Lafayette is the ripe old age of 18 years old. He was promoted and given the rank of captain in the French army. Why? Because he deserved it. No. He didn't really earn it. He didn't create plans or strategies, and he never was in any battles. So he received this rank due to his nobility, but he did sincerely want to grow, learn, and fight for the French army and make a name for himself. He had an inner desire to fight for justice, regardless of his title. I will also mention that he did want to become famous, and so that was always in the back of his mind. So now he had the rank in the French army. He had the military training. He had an impeccable uniform and an eagerness to do great things. All he needed was a place and an opportunity, both of which were not going to happen in France, or Europe for that matter, anytime soon. On a date that Lafayette will remember and speak of frequently for years to come, he meets the Duke of Gloucester, the brother of King George III, while he was at a dinner party in Metz, France. The date was August 8th, 1775. This is where Lafayette hears for the very first time about the rebellious colonists in America, defying their king to protest a system of taxation. And now the protest had turned into actual fighting. He then learns about the Battle of Lexington, the taking of Fort Ticonderoga, and he also hears that George Washington was now in charge of the Continental Army. This is also the time in which Lafayette decides to enlist as a volunteer in the American army and fight for the colonists. This date is a turning point in his life, and he saw it as an opportunity to prove himself as a military leader and also to gain glory for France and, of course, for himself. He had received his commission from Silas Dean, who was a liaison between France and the colonies, and had a beaming recommendation from Benjamin Franklin. He planned, dreamed, and looked forward to helping this glorious cause for almost a year. And then it was time to put all of this into action. Lafayette had made up his mind, packed, found a ship to sail on, and was all ready to set sail and begin his journey to the colonies. Well, his journey to the colonies across the ocean to help us started off like the waves he would soon face, big, troublesome, and difficult. Since there weren't any wars going on in Europe, there were many French officers heading to America to lend assistance. Well, to be more accurate, they were coming to teach and educate us farmers with pitchforks on how to fight, and they were cocky, arrogant, and they spoke down to people when they arrived here. 
And since there were so many French officers that were coming to the colonies, this raised the attention of the British, who didn't like it one bit. I mean, the British didn't want trained and skilled French officers coming over to help the colonists and the army, as that was going to hamper the British army. And, and they pretty much just told France to stay out of it and to mind their own business. So the British ambassador to France complained about this so much that the king issued a proclamation stating that French officers could no longer travel to the colonies. When this happened, port authorities stopped anyone trying to sail, and the ship the Lafayette was going to sail on, well, that wasn't allowed to leave either. In most cases, this is where the story or his journey to the colonies would end. But we are talking about Lafayette, the richest kid in France, the one with big dreams and goals. So what does he do? He tells his friends that were traveling with him, 12 or 13 in all, I think, they were all French officers. He says, hey, no problem. Let's just give the port authorities some fake names and I'll just buy another ship. I'm rich. Let's go. Now, there's a lot more to this story. So I put a link in the show notes to a book that talks about the specifics as just getting a ship to leave is like an entire scene out of a movie. And it has a lot of craziness attached to it, including they even had to wear disguises in order to pull this off. The ship's name was Hermione, but Lafayette rechristened it La Victoire, which means victory in French. What most don't know is when the king heard that he was going to leave France and come fight for the colonies, he issued an arrest warrant for him. Needless to say that when he set sail, his country was against it, his family was against it, and he was a wanted man. It didn't help that he was a recently married man that just left his wife and child behind. And unbeknownst to Lafayette, his wife was also pregnant with her second child. And he never told her or anybody else what day specifically he was going to leave. It's obvious to me that, that there was no mistaking that coming to America and fighting was his top priority. And nothing or no one was going to stop him. Not even the king. This is how his departure from France started, likely much different than how most people probably envision it happening. He left on April 20th, and after 56 grueling days at sea, he and his ship arrived in Charleston, South Carolina. This was the first time that Lafayette had actually been on a ship, and getting his sea legs was not very successful. Between the feeling of claustrophobia in a cabin and having no ability to leave the ship and stretch his legs, and being seasick for the entire duration, it was, in his words, a miserable experience. When his ship, La Victoire, readied to set sail back to France, it sank. So, in essence, this ship was used one time. It was a one-time-use ship, with the only purpose being that he delivered Lafayette and his comrades to the colonies. Lafayette was quite a bit different than the other French officers that had already landed. Most of them were offering their services for exorbitant fees and outrageous salaries. Lafayette had enough money, so he really didn't feel like he needed to take a salary. The other French officers were also there to teach these backwood hillbillies, the colonists, 
how to fight correctly, and as you will soon find out, Lafayette did not share this position. His first night in America was on a slave plantation, and he would spend 10 days in South Carolina before traveling to Philadelphia. That trip was not any better, as the wagons that Lafayette had purchased for the trip were useless after just a few days because all the axles broke. They weren't built in a way to accommodate such tough terrain. Now remember, they weren't getting on a paved highway. It was through the hills, trees, and very difficult landscape to move through. So let's do a brief recap. Lafayette leaving France was difficult, literally escaping arrest from the king. He was sick the entire time sailing, and if you've ever experienced seasickness, think about having it for 56 days straight. I mean, I, that's just absurd. Then, after he arrives, all the wagons break down. It was pretty remarkable to me that he didn't stop at some point and say, hey, maybe, just maybe, these are all signs that I shouldn't be doing any of this. And to heck with it. As whether by land or sea, and two countries, it had been filled with obstacle after obstacle the entire way. Lafayette arrived in Philadelphia on July 31st, 1777, and received his commission by Congress, this time in person, as Major General in the Continental Army. He then went to City Tavern, and there he would meet someone who would change his life forever. In my last episode, I go into great detail about the history and significance of City Tavern, so I won't do that again now. But listen back to it, as the history of that tavern is pretty darn amazing. So when Lafayette was at City Tavern, he sat down and was introduced to the one and only George Washington. The meeting took place at 10 p.m. After expressing a desire to serve under Washington, he had just this one time to make a first impression. George Washington by then had been introduced to countless French officers, all wanting to teach him and his army how to do things, how to fight, and again, they were very arrogant and cocky, both of which Washington disliked greatly. With Lafayette, though, it was quite the opposite of what Washington had experienced with previous introductions. When asked what Lafayette would propose Washington do, Lafayette said, General, I am not here to teach. I am here to learn. That in itself impressed Washington greatly. Such a dark contrast to what every other French officer was touting. It probably did not hurt either that Lafayette refused taking a salary and both of them were Freemasons. Although Washington was indeed looking for men that he could trust, the pool he had to choose from, military experience excluded, was pretty unimpressive. Washington at the time of this meeting was 45 years old and Lafayette just 19. Can you imagine how Lafayette must have presented himself and been in the moment to have impressed Washington? Washington was not a guy who was easily impressed, and although he did like Lafayette a great deal, he would have to walk the walk to truly impress Washington. The other thing that impressed Washington, and many others, was although it was broken and imperfect, Lafayette used English not his native language, to talk with everyone. Most other officers would rattle off their French using interpreters, but even then their condescending tone could easily be noticed. Not so 
with Lafayette. Already decked out in his Major General's sash, Lafayette was awestruck when he met Washington. Lafayette would later write about their first meeting, quote, Although he was surrounded by officers and citizens, the majesty of his figure and his height were unmistakable. Washington understood very well the significance of Lafayette's diplomatic value, so he invited him to tour the Delaware River fortifications the next day, of which they did. Lafayette thought due to his rank, of which was just one level under Washington, that he would soon be assigned a command and fight. Washington, with pretty clear instructions from Congress, said it was more of a political show and for good appearance, not really a, quote, real position where he would lead men and fight, and definitely do not let any harm come to Lafayette. This created a dilemma for Washington, who would then write to Congress, quote, If Congress meant that this rank should be unaccompanied by command, I wish it had been sufficiently explained to him. Washington invited Lafayette into his military family as an honorary aide, or so he thought that is all that he would be. This meeting between Lafayette and Washington would be the start of a lifelong friendship. Washington, who did not have any children of his own, was larger than life, a now-known internationally celebrity type. The father of his soon-to-be country in Lafayette was an orphan, always wanting but never having a father figure. It was truly something special, a bond that in many ways words truly fall short in capturing its uniqueness and quality. But I'll do my best, and you'll hear more throughout this show, about their connection. Footnote. Washington never had any children of his own. It's clear it wasn't due to Martha, as she had children from her previous marriage, and after my research, I believe it's likely due to either George Washington having tuberculosis, or possibly when he had smallpox in 1751. Tuberculosis can cause a blockage that acts the same way that a vasectomy does. I suppose we'll never know for 100% certainty. On one hand, having no direct descendants of Washington is a travesty. But on the other hand, can you imagine being a son or daughter of George Washington and trying to live up to that? Like, how could you ever compete with that? Either way, he never would have children of his own, and I'll presume that God knows best for the reasons. End footnote. Washington referred to his closest aides and generals as his family. So when he said Lafayette was part of it, Lafayette <laughs> took it literally. Whether it was a little confusion in the language or difficulty in understanding English metaphors, or maybe it was just wishful thinking or perhaps all three, Lafayette considered himself just that, in Washington's family, now an adopted son. It would not take very long for Lafayette to prove himself to Washington and that he could fight. He was serious about the cause and that he could lead men in battle. Lafayette was involved in eight battles during the Revolutionary War, and although all were important and he did great things, I'm going to focus in detail on just one, but I do have links to all of the battles he fought in, nicely organized in our show notes. I think the Battle of Brandywine is significant, which is why I wanted to focus on that. It was Lafayette's first battle of the war, in fact, and it was his first military action that he had ever even seen. Would all of that training and military action he learned back in France pay off? 
or would he fail miserably and return to France a failure? For that matter, would he be killed in battle and continue the family tradition of doing just that, which had endured for centuries? The Battle of Brandywine was one of the largest engagements of the entire war, and that took place on September 11, 1777. The British Army, led by General William Howe, was on the march towards Philadelphia, at the time the capital of the colonies. Lafayette was given a command of a division and was tasked with protecting the army's right flank. Lafayette rode into battle and to the front lines, even dismounting his horse, pushing his men forward in the process and doing all that he could to get the army to fight back. He was leading from the front, not behind, which was the most dangerous place to be. He was in the thick of it, and the bravery displayed during this battle was quite different from many in the Continental Army. Washington observed his actions and his leadership. Also, he saw Lafayette, his willingness to put his life on the line, his eagerness to fight for the cause, and Washington was very impressed. Lafayette had quickly demonstrated his resolve, and to Washington, he walked the walk to back up his talk, and Lafayette was different. Lafayette was genuine. Lafayette was a young man that Washington knew he could trust. Through the smoky air, created by thousands of muskets being fired, over men's cries for help as they lay wounded, and the overall chaos of the battle, one musket ball did find Lafayette. Both sides in total suffered 400 killed and 1,100 wounded, so it's amazing more bullets didn't find Lafayette. That one shot that did find Lafayette hit him in his left calf and was a through and through, meaning it passed all the way through his calf. And believe it or not, he did not realize that he had even been shot, likely due to the adrenaline coursing his entire body and being so focused on leading and fighting himself. After being shot, Lafayette continued to fight valiantly. He procured organization, and he remained in the battle until he conducted an orderly retreat. A 17-year-old sergeant named Andrew Wallace, out of the 19th Regiment of Pennsylvania, eventually rushed to him, helped him mount his horse, and then rode him to safety. My fifth great-grandfather fought in the war and lived in Pennsylvania, so hey, a little shout-out to everybody listening in Pennsylvania. Only after the adrenaline left his body and some semblance of calm took place, did Lafayette look down to his leg and see blood overflowing out of his boot? Did he realize that he had been shot? Although not life-threatening at the time, he had lost so much blood he almost passed out twice, and unattended, he could have easily died from that injury. Lafayette's leadership and bravery were crucial in this battle. He personally led several charges against the British, and his division managed to hold their position for several hours despite being vastly outnumbered. He had shown that he was a capable commander and had earned the respect and admiration of both his fellow soldiers and the other generals, and most importantly, Washington. Later that evening, after the retreat, he was taken to a town called Chester and then to Bethlehem, where many of the other wounded Continentals were receiving care. Washington sent his personal physician to take care of Lafayette with special orders and instructions, which were, quote, take care of him as if he were my son. Think about that statement. 
They hadn't known each other for very long, yet George Washington is going to send his own personal doctor to tend to him and then tell them, you better treat this guy and make sure he's okay. You better treat him as if he were my own son. There was something very, very special taking place, and the bond between them was growing rapidly, deeply, and sincerely. Some say that Washington did and said that because if Lafayette died, the connection to France would be lost, and potentially the war too. I'm not oblivious to the fact that Washington knew the importance of the political power that Lafayette held, but I do believe what he did for Lafayette in sending his own doctor came from a place in his heart his honest concern for him, and his recovery. Writing to his wife, Lafayette said, quote, His tender interest for me soon won my heart to him when he sent me his personal surgeon. He told him to take care of me as if I were his son because he loved me like one. When Lafayette was interviewed in 1824, he said this about the battle, quote, The ball went through and through. I was on foot when I received my wound. A part of our line had given way, but a part still held its ground. To these I repaired. To encourage my comrades and to show them I had no better chance of flight than they did, I ordered my horse to the rear. The news of me being hurt was conveyed to the commander-in-chief with the usual exaggerations in such cases. The good General Washington freely expressed his grief that one so young and a volunteer in the holy cause of freedom should so early have fallen. But he was soon relieved by an assurance that my wound would not stop short of life when he sent me his love and congratulations that matters were no worse. He continued, I could do no more becoming faint. I was carried into a house in Chester and laid on a table when my wound received its first dressing. The enemy continuing to advance, I was removed to Bethlehem and thence in the coach of President Lawrence, who was the president of the Continental Congress, where I remained until so much recovered as to be able to repair to headquarters. It's so cool to hear a story from a third party or a historian and then read what he actually experienced and said and Oftentimes, you'll see that these aren't necessarily matching up, but in this case, it was pretty much um, the same story. So uh, it's, it's just fun for me to get that firsthand experience, that first-person view, as it were. Um, so it's, I, it's long, but I thought you might enjoy it. Unfortunately, the Battle of Brandywine ended in a defeat, but Lafayette's actions were not in vain. His leadership and bravery had bought valuable time for the Continental Army to retreat and regroup, and the battle was a turning point for Lafayette's career. He went on to become one of the most respected and revered officers in the entire Continental Army. Lafayette would return to France briefly, laying down the groundwork that resulted in over 6,000 French troops coming to fight alongside the Continental Army. He would then return to America and continue his efforts in securing independence from England. Just three months after Brandywine, he would join George Washington during the winter quarters at a very famous place called Valley Forge. Lafayette enjoyed the men's admiration of Valley Forge, and he had spent his own money on his men for uniforms and anything else they needed previously. Had there been any food or clothing to buy at the time, he would have, but since there wasn't, many men went without blankets, food, and in some cases, clothing. At the end of the entire war, 
Lafayette had spent roughly $200,000 of his own money on men that were under his command. Lafayette also worked very closely with Baron von Steuben, who helped create order and turned the collection of men into a drilled, organized, marching, and orderly army. Here at Valley Forge, they really became an army, a real army, and Lafayette helped von Steuben create a manual for the army, of which many things in that are still used today in the army handbook. While at Valley Forge, there was a very famous event called the Conway Cabal, which in short was an attempt to remove George Washington as commander, in part for losing Brandywine. Part of this cabal, knowing how close Lafayette and Washington were, was to get Lafayette out of the picture for just a little bit. Washington and Lafayette did not like this idea of going out and invading Canada to get the territory back under France's control, but they eventually agreed under certain circumstances. Lafayette would only take and follow orders if they were from Washington himself. He would not take them from Congress, and he would not even take them from a newly created board of war, which was a complete joke that I won't go into here, and that he could choose who Lafayette would take with him. Congress agreed. Interestingly, one of the officers Lafayette chose was Captain Pierre L'Enfant. If this name sounds familiar, it is because later in 1791, L'Enfant would create the design and layout of Washington, D.C. Lafayette knew that this assignment to Canada was not quite on the up and up. He showed his maturity and boldness during this time and sent scathing letters to the President of Congress and that dreaded Board of War blasting everyone, telling him his true thoughts about them and this worthless expedition. Keep in mind, you, here you have a guy that was 20 years old, and maturity hit him pretty hard after this, because if you put these letters and letters he wrote afterwards, you can really discern the difference. Like this was a this was the time that he was really getting into the groove, so to speak, on how to relay and communicate with a lot of different departments and different people. Just six days into his trip to Canada, Lafayette wrote Washington, quote, I go on very slowly sometimes, pierced by rain, sometimes covered with snow, and not thinking many handsome thoughts about the projected incursion into Canada. Lafayette was promised 2,400 men upon arriving. He had less than half of that. Provisions were guaranteed. There were none. His skill of diplomacy was discovered during this trip to Canada as he spoke with several Native American tribes and created calm and peace when it could have easily escalated into fighting. Lafayette eventually called off the invasion and returned to where he wanted to be all along, at the side of George Washington. The supposed leader of this cabal was Brigadier General Thomas Conway of the French Army, who also commanded a brigade in Washington's army. Conway criticized Washington's performance in the Battle of Brandywine, but of course spoke very highly on his own actions and how great he was in that same battle. Conway wrote Congress requesting a promotion, of which Washington protested and was rather irritated by the request, knowing it would be a disaster having him or anyone else in charge, and also what it would do for the morale of the entire army and cause if he were removed. 
The history books provide many reasons why this attempt to remove Washington failed. I think the real reason is this. One, regardless of battles won or lost, Washington overall was loved, adored, and revered by everyone. Those who didn't were jealous and envious of him, and they were willing to do whatever they could to try and advance themselves. Secondly, and in my opinion, the largest and most important reason, is that while this was all going on, Lafayette stood up to everybody, including Congress, in support of Washington and how he must remain as commander. If you spoke negatively about Washington within Lafayette's earshot, you better be prepared for a harsh and deserved scolding. Lafayette told Congress that if George Washington was removed or demoted, that he would immediately resign, immediately leave the army and go back to France and would not do anything to assist France coming and joining America to fight. He did not beat around the bush and not only drew a line in the sand, it was a blatant and obvious line that you had better not cross. I can't say that without Lafayette the war would have been lost, but I can say that Lafayette had a direct line to the king, he had a lot of political clout and power, and could be very persuasive, and without him, who knows what France would have done or not have done, and I think the outcome of the war could have looked very, very different. Near the end of Valley Forge, we learned that France had decided to enter the war on our side. Now, this was incredible news, but with it also came some sad news, as Lafayette found out that his child had died. So, Valley Forge for Lafayette was a mixed bag of both blessings and sadness. If you like my podcast and what I'm doing, and you want to support it, I have a few ways that you can do that. Word of mouth is certainly the best way to advertise, so please tell your friends and family about this podcast. It's kid-friendly, too, so you can share it with teachers and schools if you want to. Podcasts that have a lot of reviews are just found easier. So if you have a few seconds, and literally that's all it takes, go to the bottom of my podcast, click the number of stars that you feel it is warranted, and that's it. You can write something if you want, but that's not necessary. It literally takes you just a few seconds. Lastly, we have some pretty cool patriotic gear on our newly launched online store. We have mugs, t-shirts with famous and important revolutionary quotes. Thanks for your consideration. And now, let's get back to the podcast. I'm going to jump ahead to the end of the war and discuss Lafayette's contributions at Yorktown. Now, Yorktown is considered by almost everybody the last battle of the war. In actuality, it was the last large-scale battle and then siege of the war, but skirmishes and fighting would go on for two more years throughout the colonies. Yorktown all but ended the war, but not the fighting, and John Lawrence was killed in a skirmish a year after the victory at Yorktown. It was a senseless and unnecessary death. In the aftermath of the Battle of Brandywine, Lafayette remarked about John Lawrence, quote, It was not his fault that he was not killed or wounded. He did everything that was necessary to procure one or the other. Lawrence was very good friends with both Alexander Hamilton and Lafayette. Backing up a little bit, I want to talk about what happened at Yorktown that involves Lafayette specifically. 
I won't go into great detail about the battle, the plans, all the ins and outs, but it is important to understand what part Lafayette played in one of the most famous and important battles of the entire war. Lafayette had led a successful attack on British fortifications on the left flank of the American lines. He and his troops also helped cut off the British Army's supply lines, which was critical as without food and supplies, you can't exist, which pushed Cornwallis to a place of desperation. Lafayette was involved with the negotiations of surrender, which resulted in 8,000 British soldiers putting down their muskets and giving up. After the war, Lafayette helped to secure the release of American prisoners of war who were being held by the British in brutal conditions on prison warships. As the last surviving major general of the Revolutionary War, President James Monroe invited Lafayette to come back and visit the 24 states 50 years after the Revolution. Lafayette did come back, and he visited every state in a tour that was popularly called Farewell Tour of America, where Lafayette was celebrated and hailed as a hero everywhere that he went, even by President John Quincy Adams and other figures. In the New England area alone, Lafayette made over 170 stops. Lafayette visited both large and small cities and stopped, it seems, everywhere he could. He didn't confine himself to only the state houses and official government type locations. He even stopped at schools and businesses. One letter I found that warrants mentioning is when he visited a school and the following was written about it. Now, I just have to say, I don't know how I stumbled across this. I think I was in the 15th rabbit hole of the 10th rabbit hole of my research. But when I found this and I was reading it, it was just like so cool. So this is a letter that I found and it describes what happened when he visited a school. Quote, as Lafayette entered the teacher's desk, I turned to look at the pupils. A magician's hand could not have effected a more sudden transformation. Smiles and animation had displaced fatigue and anxiety. Every eye glistened, but it was with enthusiasm. Every heart swelled with intense interest as we beheld the friend, the defender, the martyr of liberty. The letter ended by also mentioning the weather and his departure. Quote, As he left the building, the clouds which had obscured the heavens suddenly became dissipated in the west, and although the rain still fell in torrents, the sun broke forth with unusual splendor, forming a magnificent rainbow in the east. The splendid colors of the rainbow beautifully contrasted with the masses of dark clouds that still skirted the horizon. Thankfully, there are hundreds of letters and first-hand accounts to examine and enjoy, and so much has not been discussed here about his life, but hopefully you do have now a better understanding of the Marquis de Lafayette. Nobody is perfect, and Lafayette is no exception. He spent money at a rate that left him after the war in debt. He had a mistress and was unfaithful to his faithful wife. He missed the first formative years of his children growing up and wasn't present to console his wife when his firstborn died way too young. He suggested a plan to raise troops and money using slaves, but then he became an extreme abolitionist. Yes, he did incredible things that nobody else could have done, but he had flaws too. 
He, like George Washington, had far more positives than negatives, but the negatives shouldn't be overlooked either. You do have to include both the good and bad if you want an accurate picture of somebody. It's easy to pick and choose things in history that support a certain position, you know, like the press does, but Lafayette was human, and like Washington and everybody else that is now seen only as marble statues, they had likes, they had dislikes, beliefs, loves, and sufferings, anger, fear, and all other emotions that you and I deal with. Lafayette isn't just a painting depicting perfection, but most certainly, he was an amazing great man that did amazing and great things, many of which would change the United States and the world in a good way, as did his mentor, George Washington. Before we get to the part of the show I call Lesser Known, Fun, and Interesting Facts section, I want to reinforce the bond that Washington and Lafayette had by reading parts of a few letters between them. What I'm reading is taken directly from the actual letters that went on between them continuously before Washington died in 1799. I'm going to leave out specific dates of the letters as, after reading hundreds of them, the dates don't really seem too critical to the message. The theme, however, was always consistent, one of adoration, love, and respect that they had for each other. A reunion in 1784, which Lafayette looked forward to by excitedly writing to Washington, quote, By Sunday or Monday, I hope at least to be blessed with the sight of my dear general. There is no rest for me until I go to Mount Vernon. I long for the pleasure to embrace you, my dear general, and the happiness of being once more with you will be so great that no words can ever express it. Adieu, my dear general. In a few days I shall be at Mount Vernon, and I do already feel delighted with so charming a prospect. After this visit was over, Washington wrote, In the moment of our separation, upon the road as I traveled, and every hour since, I have felt all that love, respect, and attachment for you with which length of years, close connection, and your merits have inspired me. I often ask myself, as our carriages separated, whether that was going to be the last time I ever should see you. Sadly, unknown to both of them, that was the last time that they would ever see each other. In another letter, quote, You know it always gives me the sincerest pleasure to hear from you, my dear Marquis, and therefore I need only say that your two kind letters of the 9th and 15th of October, so replete with personal affection and confidential intelligence, afforded me inexpressible satisfaction. I shall now only add what you knew well before, that with the most sincere friendship and affectionate regard, I am always yours. When Lafayette wrote to his wife after first meeting Washington, he said, Washington is more regal than any monarch. There is also the story, probably my favorite, of after the Battle of Monmouth. Uh, this was after the battle, and both of them, uh, which both of them were amazing in the battle, uh, but they were both were exhausted and tired beyond compare. Washington took off his cape and placed it on the ground, and they both lied down on it, and they slept side by side throughout the entire night. This almost sounds too good to be true, and Lafayette wrote about it in his memoirs, but still, was it true? 
Nathaniel Green, one of Washington's most trusted generals, rode upon this site, and he even wrote a letter to his wife describing what he had seen. It must have been pretty powerful, as if you think about it. After a battle, he took the time to write his wife about seeing men sleeping. But these men were George Washington and Marquis de Lafayette, so it makes sense and so thankful that he actually documented it. The too-good-to-be-true story actually did happen, and if you picture this in your mind as I do, what an unbelievable and touching moment. It's funny that such an endearing moment would be created by two magnificent men, and they weren't even aware of it happening. They literally slept right through it. The king and his knight recuperating. The father and son sleeping. This is also the only recorded moment ever where Washington not only allowed, but offered someone to rest alongside him. You know all the stories about people loving Washington so much that they rush up to him and shake his hand and hug him and kiss him, you know, all those stories? If none come to mind, don't beat yourself up. It's because it never happened. Well, almost never. At the Battle of Monmouth, after Yorktown, and several other occasions, Lafayette rushed up to Washington hugged him tightly and kissed both of his cheeks, as French people do. Nobody ever dared even touching Washington, let alone hugging and kissing him. This was unheard of, and even his own family wouldn't show this much affection. Lafayette is the only person who did this and was allowed to do this, which tells us a great deal about their bond, friendship, and respect that they had for one another. In 1824, Lafayette visited Mount Vernon to pay respects at Washington's tomb. His personal secretary wrote, quote, Lafayette descended alone in the vault and after a few minutes thereafter reappeared. With his eyes overflowing with tears, he took his son and me by hand and led us into the tomb. We knelt reverentially near his coffin, which we respectfully saluted. We mingled our tears with his. As mentioned earlier, after our revolution had ended, Lafayette went back to France and fought and participated in the French Revolution. His actions, participation, and all that transpired would take another show dedicated to it. Well, that's exactly what I'm going to do. For the first time ever, I'm going to have a part two for a bonus episode. And as a teaser, Lafayette spent five years, five years in prison, and is thought of and remembered in France nothing like he is here in America. Lafayette is an amazing man to get to know and learn about, who risked it all. He left a life of luxury and being pampered, having all the money, wealth, and power that one could ever dream about, to come fight in our revolution. He spent hundreds of thousands of dollars of his own money on his men. He was injured more than once in battle, and he became a leader in the revolution, not only becoming a great military general, but a close, dear, and great friend of George Washington. He didn't just talk about doing big things. He did them. He didn't hope. He made it happen. He rightfully deserves the respect, honor, and gratitude from our country for what he did in gaining our independence. 
Keep in mind, I touched on a small part of his experience here, as there were seven other battles that he was involved with and, and did many other things, but I'm hoping that you have an appreciation for Lafayette and that you know him just a little bit better. You can also fill in some of the gaps, so to speak, and learn lots more about him by visiting my show notes, which is a giant resource that accompanies every single show that I do. Phew, I could go on and on about him, but we have now reached the part of my show I call Lesser Known Fun and Interesting Facts. And what you will notice is it's amazing just how many times that Lafayette was present during many important and history-making moments. We've reached the part of the show called Lesser Known, Fun, and Interesting Facts. Lafayette was only 19 years old when he came to America to fight in the Revolution, and he came without any battlefield experience. He was the youngest major general in the Continental Army. He was given the nickname Hero of Two Worlds for his role in both the American and French Revolutions. This is a title of a book listed in, in my show notes, which is an excellent read, and I highly recommend getting it. It's available on Audible, too, if you uh, prefer audiobooks. The Marquis de Lafayette corresponded with the first seven United States presidents, but he devoted most of his parchment paper to George Washington. In 1785, Lafayette sent seven large French hounds across the Atlantic Ocean as gifts to Washington. Washington then bred them with another breed, creating what we now call today the American Foxhound. Lafayette named his only son... George Washington Lafayette. He once wrote about the American Revolution that, quote, humanity has won its battle. Liberty now has a country. Lafayette's death was caused by similar circumstances as Washington. Washington rode his estate in a snowstorm and came inside drenched in sleet, very cold, and wet clothes. Not wanting to keep his guests waiting on him, he sat down for dinner in those clothes. Three days later, he died from a throat infection. Lafayette went for a walk out in the rain, caught pneumonia, and passed away from it. After surviving countless battles, musket balls that went through their clothing, and countless other dangerous situations and diseases, both would die from what today could be cured easily with antibiotics. When Washington first was told that Benedict Arnold was a spy and had proof in his hands, Lafayette was there present with him. George Washington ordered Lafayette, with all resources provided to him, to hunt, find, and kill Benedict Arnold after he was discovered as a spy and traitor. Lafayette, as with everyone else who tried, and there were many, were unsuccessful in completing that task. Lafayette was on the board that found John Andre guilty. Andre was a British officer who was communicating with Benedict Arnold during his treasonous plot. Since Andre was in civilian clothing, he was considered a spy and the sentence was death. Andre was extremely good-looking, smart, could speak as many languages as he could play instruments, and was loved by 
everybody that met him, on both sides. Although everyone pleaded with Washington to put him to death by a firing squad, as most high officers would be, Washington refused and hanging would take place, as that is the form of death for spies. At his execution, many, including Lafayette, wept. Lafayette said, quote, All the court were filled with sentiments of admiration and compassion for him. He behaved with so much frankness, courage, and delicacy that I could not help lamenting his unhappy fate. This was one of my most painful duties I ever had to perform. Alexander Hamilton, at the time he was Washington's aide-de-camp, was called upon by Washington. Hamilton was on his way up the staircase to meet him, but prior to that, stopped and had a conversation with Lafayette. Because of this delay, as Hamilton climbed the steps, Washington blasted him for making him wait. Hamilton quit on the spot. Joseph Plum Martin, who served in the Continental Army during the American Revolution, wrote in his memoirs that Marquis de Lafayette was a most gallant and brave officer and was much beloved by the soldiers. I have a link to Martin's book in the show notes. It's a pretty fascinating read. Lafayette was the first foreign officer to command an American unit in the Revolutionary War. He was also the first foreign dignitary to address the House of Representatives. Lafayette requested to the king and everyone at Versailles to send the French army to assist countless times. It is because of Lafayette that France sent not only one large army, but two, and eventually officially joined the war to fight on our side. Lafayette was called the Conqueror of Cornwallis and is considered by many the hero and reason for the victory at Yorktown. There are many more fun facts, but several of those involve the French Revolution, so I'll save them for my first ever bonus episode, part two. Also, we are now on more platforms, including iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many others, and you can find all of them by visiting patriotpowerpodcast.com and then just click on podcast. Please consider supporting my show by becoming a show sponsor visiting the online store, and also just sharing this podcast with your friends and family. My next episode will continue with the timeline of the revolution, and there we have reached the point of the very first battle of the revolution. Enjoy all of the show notes for this and all episodes, and I appreciate you listening. Thanks for listening and hope that you tune in next time with us here at the Patriot Power Podcast. Make sure that you hit subscribe so you'll get notified when our new episodes are available for you. And we hope that you check out our websites, which include our show notes, links, documents, and more at PatriotPowerPodcast.com or ILoveGeorgeWashington.com. Until next time, hope that you and your family have a blessed week. And remember, be safe and tell a veteran thanks for their service.